Welcome to Project Update, a weekly podcast about the projects we're working on and the Pyrrhic victories we're winning. I'm Joe Simpson. And I'm Dave Ramsey. How's it going, Dave? Uh, it's fun. Fun? <laughs> you sound a little drained. I am a little drained. It, it was... Week one was great, and week two was horrifying. You mean like binge development during a pandemic isn't a good way to spend your time? <laughs> I would be fine with binge development. I One of the things that I like about code is making progress. Mm-hmm. Like coming up with a list of things to accomplish and then knocking those things out. And progress is everything to me. And when I'm not making progress, particularly when I'm working very hard and not making progress, mm-hmm. that sucks. So what have you been working on? Uh, so based upon some of the conversations that we had last episode and some other conversations with Joe, I wanted to get the Windows version of FM comparison up to speed with the Mac version. A, you really wanted to get access to the Chromium developer tools, Mm -hmm. which you'd have access to in the Windows version. And it's a good idea. Like, I was going to have to do it eventually. My original plan was to really worry about that once we kind of had the Mac version nailed down. I knew it wasn't going to be too time-consuming. So, basically, the Windows version, I'd gotten it up to the point where everything was in line with the Mac version a few months ago. And then just stopped working on the Windows version because I had a plan. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah. So, um, yeah, once I got past the tech demo stage, I just kind of stopped Windows development. And then I made you start it early, apparently. Yeah, yeah. So the cool part is, for people looking forward to FM comparison, that that means that the Windows version will be coming out much closer to the same time as the Mac version. Maybe even at the exact same time. Hmm. There were some kind of version control issues as I was doing that where I'd make a change in the Mac version because there were two separate code bases with a large chunk of shared code. And so I would make a change to the Windows version and then realize that I needed to backport that to Windows. And so run it up to the version control server, then down to the Mac, then copy the code over to the Mac version of the application, build, test, everything's okay. Now run that back to the version control server. And if that caused another change, it would have to go back through that path. And I just wanted to simplify that a little bit. Like, okay, if I'm really going to do these in lockstep, they need to change a little more dynamically. And I thought this was going to be a real pain just dealing with this kind of chunk of shared code. And it turns out that Visual Studio has a project type for shared code. Hmm. And it's basic, it's almost a virtual project. It's just a folder with a bunch of code files in it. And you just make, make a reference to that project. And when it compiles the one, it will grab those other files and compile them in. And that shared project doesn't have any compiler settings or anything. It adopts the compiler settings of what's actually being built. Okay. So I can have the shared code in one place, a Mac project 
and a Windows project. And the Mac version says use Mac tools, Windows version says use Windows tools, and both of them can pull from the shared folder. And it's awesome. Yeah. Um, it's not like a framework in Mac OS where you're like, this thing has to build first, and then that compiled code gets used in the other place. It's not much more than a folder. Yeah, it's more like an import. You just import these assets while we're yeah compiling. Yeah. Um, it took a bunch of flailing around to get it to work right. This was not a quick change. But once I got all the pieces in place, it kind of works. So there's now one version of what I call the FM comparison core. Hmm. It's all the part that actually does the data crunching. And so what's in the Mac and Windows apps is just the part that talks to the browser and then translates any incoming messages into calls to the core. That's it. Mm -hmm. And so those apps are actually pretty thin. It's just a translation layer between the two. That made me very happy, and that's why week one was so awesomely productive, because I thought that was going to take a huge amount of time, and it just kind of popped out, and now it'll be really easy to keep them in sync. And then also, based upon a conversation I think we had in last episode, was I added some code for a, basically a batch import button mm, Yeah. to make your life a little easier. Yeah, so this is me complaining about having to open a new window... Go into dev mode, select a file, select another file, run DDR, hit back, go back to where I was. And we we mused that I could maybe even do this on the front end. And before I got a chance to do it, you built a, a process in to the back end and then threw some buttons in the UI. Basically, new window, go to dev mode, go to configuration and tap a button. It, it, it picks two DDRs with a hard-coded path and analyzes them. Mm -hmm. And honestly, there wasn't a lot of back-end change. Most of the, I mean, there was a little bit of change in the front-end, a little bit of change in the back-end, but mostly what I had to do was set up a pathway for passing a path. Mm -hmm. Because the browser can't really be path-aware. Yeah, It's just not allowed, particularly with absolute pathing. And... The back end isn't storing the information. So that's all that happens is you call the thing that says, here's the old file path, here's the new file path, and then please click the button that says do the comparison. Yeah, the, the weirdest part, so Dave sent me an email about it, like here here's where to find the path if you want to set it up on your system. So I went to find it, and... The weird part was the escape characters for the slashes. The escape <laughs> character is a slash. And at first glance, I'm like, what is wrong with Dave's file system? And then, yeah, yeah, so if you think of it, in a sh so the Windows uses backslashes, but backslashes is the escape character. So you have to escape that. So you need to give it two backslashes. But... Because you're actually doing it like inside JavaScript, you actually need to backslash each of the backslashes. So on the Mac side, it's folder forward slash for, folder forward slash folder. On the Windows side, it's folder four backslashes, folder four backslashes. No, it was just two. Is it? 
Yeah. At least in the one that I have. Hmm. I have to take another look at it. Yeah, it was obnoxious. <laughs> and of course, the, the first thing I did was replace the path that you had hard-coded with my path and try it and then compose a long email about how it's not working. And then I look over at the code again and I had just changed the Mac path when I was working on Windows. <laughs> like, yep, I'm literally clicking the wrong button. So I, I had like a, I don't know, 600 word GitHub message all ready to go. Like, here's what I tried. Here's what's not working. Here's the path that you put in. Here's the path that I put. Like all debugged out and ready to go. Just, <laughs> Oops, wrong variable. So the cool part now is I've actually got a Mac version of the button and a Windows version of the button. Mm -hmm. And because Joe is working in Windows, you've um, you've changed the Windows code, but mm -hmm. left the Mac code. But I'm primarily coding on Mac. So yeah. I still have a button, and you have a button, but they don't say the Joe button and the Dave button. Anyway. Yeah. Not yet. Yeah, so that was relatively thin, and I can honestly see a potential use for it if we were to give FM comparison like a memory for previously run files. Mm -hmm. It could remember those locations, and you could right-click on something and say, use this as the old file. And so that yeah. could pass a path. I don't know. Might, might actually be useful. Mm-hmm. So we finally got our icons squared away. I think we talked about picking out icons last week or last episode. And Dave went through and kind of scanned through this asset pack called line icons and just got rid of all the irrelevant ones. Like we don't need the Twitter logo and stuff like that. And then it was just a matter of figuring out how to get it working in the project. And we ended up using the font version, which just really involved copying a folder of assets into the assets folder and adding a CSS file and then importing the CSS file in the uh, index file. And that was about it. It's now we can use the assets anywhere, um, basically just as CSS classes or not classes, uh, I guess it, HTML attributes. We just drop in this little blurb of HTML with a name, and those names are also bindable, so there are places where the icon is something that can change dynamically, like swapping out two versions for a toggle or things like that, and we can just bind that with a string. So it's all in there and working. It's pretty neat. And that's part of why I have Joe, because mm -hmm. that would have taken me weeks. Not, not, well, to pick, not to pick the icons, that took weeks. But Yeah, I was going to say, technically it did take us weeks, but it wasn't weeks of work, it was weeks of thinking. Yeah. Yeah, so that kind of gets us into week two. Week two sucked. Yeah? Yeah. Um, I started with uh, Windows key commands. Mm. Like control key. Again, my fault. Because <laughs> I... Well, After Dave added some dev mode stuff to the Windows version, I'm like, hey, you know, there's no keyboard shortcut here, but no rush on that. It's not a big deal. Like, <laughs> <laughs> So I'm like, well, I've done some Google searches and I found some sample code, and, and this should be fairly straightforward. Like, most applications do this. This shouldn't be that difficult. Mm -hmm. The answer is, yes, it totally is that difficult. <laughs> it's 
catastrophically painful. There's like a three-way interaction between things just to tie a key command to a menu item. Because when you're defining the menu item, there's actually a property there where you can put in the text that appears on the key command. But that has no functional impact whatsoever. Oh, nice. Computer people being computer people, you can read all sorts of stuff from people saying uh, how brilliant this concept is and how well it works in practice. But I have to say, coming in from the outside, they are not correct about this. <laughs> There's nothing to stop you from having that system and still be able to do something really simple. Like on the Mac side, in order to tie a key command to a menu option, you click in a spot in Xcode, type the key command, and you're done. Mm -hmm. It's literally all that's required. And even better, every one of those is user overridable. So I can go into the settings on my Mac mm -hmm. and change that keyboard shortcut for any application. Yeah. And what really slowed things down was Visual Studio itself. Because when I finally got it working, there's still a spot in where you define the layout. The chunk of XML that defines the view mm -hmm. says that this won't compile, that this is invalid code. And it's the only version I could get working. Oh, no. So you got a code that says I'm bad but does compile? Yes. I don't like that. I don't like that either. And the good news is it's not there anymore because I had to rip it all out anyway oh, for man. the next issue. <laughs> I've had I, stuff like that in Unity before. I'm just like, this, this, shouldn't, this says it shouldn't work, mm -hmm. but it does. And I feel bad about closing this file and moving on, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> like, Yeah. And part of the slowdown was the fact that I am not in the habit of compiling and testing code that the editor says won't work. I know. Therefore, when it said it won't work, I didn't try it. So therefore, I didn't find out that that worked. But yeah, all that got yanked out. Gone. And that was because of an issue with using browsers as UI elements. Mm. Unlike a text field or a checkbox, there's a lot of built-in functionality to a web browser as a UI element. Including key commands. Like when you were doing back to get from the configuration screen to the diff view, mm -hmm. I never had to tell it that control back arrow was going to do that. That's built into the browser. But what it means is in a lot of cases, those browsers just eat key commands. So while if you clicked on the menu, any menu option, the key commands worked. But if you clicked in the browser, the key commands stopped working. Yeah, so it's... When the browser has focus, it's swallowing the key commands. But when the browser isn't in focus, even though that's not really a valid mm -hmm. concept here, because yeah. the app is the browser. But I guess if you clicked in the menu, you could deactivate the browser control. Yeah, exactly. Basically a focus thing. And so what I needed to write then, particularly for Windows, is a key command handler in the JavaScript side that would assess whether this is a key command that belongs in the JavaScript or whether it needed to be manually passed up to the application itself. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I built. And so there's now a little, you know, my little message passing pathways between the front end and the back end. There's now a special little thing for, hey, we got a key command. And it just sends the data about the key command. 
And he always goes, oh, I know how to deal with this. And takes it from there. That so not- took a really, really long time. It was like three days. Nice. I did notice a couple of areas where it's still possible for the browser to lose focus. And then the key command stop working. So I wonder if it's possible at the end of any of those menu commands to have a step that just... I don't know, tabs into the browser region or just reactivates that control just as a, a fail-safe. Okay. I I wrote the code so that it should handle that, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't. I haven't been able to reproduce that issue. Okay. Um, if you can find a way to reproduce it, I can absolutely tackle it because there is a standard key command handler in the Windows code. Basically, that's what the, the front end, the, the JavaScript ends up calling is that handler. So that mm-hmm. should be able to handle it. And so I just haven't been able to reproduce a case where something slips through those cracks. Yeah. The version that I have currently, the like the zoom out key command works and the zoom in does not. Okay. Things like that. Like control minus will work, but control plus will not. Okay. Interesting. And then those same things, when I go up to the menu and hit the zoom in button, no keyboard shortcuts work after that point until I tap into the web browser again. Oh, yuck. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I was wondering if there's a process, like just some kind of universal function you can call at the end of any time the user goes up to a menu and uses the menu dropdown. If the last thing that any of those things can do is just reactivate the browser kind of like in FileMaker, like go to layout object right uh i'm gonna have to play with it mm-hmm. there should be a way to do that there's set focus stuff and things like that yeah so after my fantastic success with getting that shared code module working um between the mac and the windows version i decided i wanted to do the same thing with my unit tests Um, they had worked when I'd started merging these things together and now I was like okay but these unit tests are basically the same sort of thing they're mostly unit tests for the back end number crunching so let me put those in a shared module and then I have the Mac version like a Mac testing app and a Windows testing app so once again three more projects Hmm. and this should work right and it doesn't and the error message is bad, and that error message cost me 48 to 72 hours. And so basically what happened is between when it worked and when it didn't, I had made some further modifications to the back end. Mm. And one of the things that I ended up doing was giving the back end the vaguest awareness of the fact that a front end exists. Mm. And this was so that the back end could tell the front end that it was partway through a process. And the app still worked. The app works fine. This was successful code. I I want to stress that. This works in the actual app, but it completely breaks unit testing for whatever reason. And I I still don't know why it doesn't work fully. But for whatever reason, that was the problem, was giving it that awareness. Huh. And so the error messages were not 
telling me you can't do this. It kept saying, you're using a class here and I don't know what class that is. And I'm like, it's right there. Why, why is this class suddenly unknown? The app works. Why won't the unit test of the app work? Um, and so the trick was ripping that out. Mm-hmm. I, I had to pass that information via a different mechanism that's obnoxious and technical. But the point is, it now works. The front end and the front end knows about the back end, but the back end doesn't know anything about the front end. It just kind of generates notifications that the process, the progress is updated. And just hopes that somebody's going to handle that at some point and the front end handles it. Mm-hmm. So that again, really disgustingly painful. I, I won, but it was via attrition. <laughs> That's never good for anybody. It's a good way to end your week. Yeah. Total exhaustion. It's kind of a won the battle, lost the war kind of feel to it. Mm -hmm. So I had to take a couple of days to myself. I was was just mentally exhausted. So. And I will reiterate, most of this was my fault. (laughs) Most of this had to be done. It's only yeah, eventually, but it didn't it have to happen now. last week. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so while I was taking that time off, Joe had questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now that you've figured out all of your stuff, help me with my most difficult issues <laughs> in your downtime. <laughs> yeah, my downtime. So we had to we kind of reorganize the category data of how the app is structured. So I guess... Big picture, you've got the sidebar on the side after you run a diff that will show you all the categories of data you can check. So, you, you know, categories are things like tables and fields and layouts and layout objects and scripts and so on. Anything in, that we think of as FileMaker developers that could have something on the diff, there's a category for that. And we've got a couple of features about how categories need to work. Um, there was some requirements of during the initial setup process for a diff before you run the comparison, Dave wants a way for users to be able to select and deselect categories or groups of categories. So say, I'm just running this. All I want to look at is tables and fields. I don't care about the rest. So they can uncheck those boxes. And we don't even bother to run the diff on that stuff. We don't show it in the sidebar. Um, It's just excluded from that session. And so that's one feature. Another feature would be when you click on a category in the sidebar, it loads the content region. In most cases, it loads the item list and a detail region. And I wanted to be able to give kind of unique state objects to each of the categories to track its state in the item list. So the item list could have thousands of things in it and could be sorted a particular order could be on page 15 out of 25 pages and on the you know 150th record in that found set and if you briefly navigate to another category I want to capture that state and be able to restore it to you if you come back to that and maybe that's a you know an optional feature if people want to turn that off and just always start from the beginning we can let them but 
I wanted a way to basically when you load a category or you load the item data for a category, create an object that holds essentially its user interface state. So where you are in the position of the data, uh, any sort orders, any filters that are applied, um, just any any of the kind of category specific UI that we come up with because some of them are going to have custom views. And this would be so much easier in an object-oriented world, but we're in JavaScript right now. So we don't really have that. We, we do have named objects, which is kind of what we settled on. And then I think that was about it for the complexity. The, the, the app currently or previously structured was off of a single JSON object that had a bunch of other JSON objects representing each category. And we kind of refactored that into several different lists. One is kind of, we're calling it the category base list. This kind of the, the, this is every permutation of everything we can think of. And that is basically a, a backend list that tells us, it basically holds keys. Like it's got a name, like I'm the table row. That's a bad example. I'm the layout row. Mm-hmm. And I've got a backend key that tells me what data to get from the backend, from the C-sharp backend. And I've got a user interface key to tell me what layout to go to and what state object to reference to restore my state. And I've got a checkbox to whether or not I should show. And I've got, right now we don't, we haven't localized any of the stuff, but this is where we'll add, you know, the localization stuff and load the name of the category dynamically based on what language setting the user is using. So that's our base list. And then we've got our, we broke the backend key into its own list and the front end state objects will be its, its own list. And the configuration screen where you're selecting groups and categories will be its own list because that doesn't actually line up one-to-one with the base list. So we ended up with four different lists of categories all being controlled by one of them. And only really only one of them lives in the store and the other ones are mostly just there for reference. So in database terms, we went from one big flat table to four or five separate mm-hmm. tables all relationally connected. Yeah. Yeah, it was actually relatively easy to think about it in terms of database stuff. It was The tricky part was how to actually get it all working in JavaScript with no type system. But... Uh, Dave threw together a little demo file in FileMaker and wrote, basically there's a, a flat table there that we can enter in all the values we need to. And then he wrote some code, some calculations that will generate JavaScript out of that, ignoring the built-in FileMaker JavaScript functions because they're obnoxious and doing some fancy substitute stuff instead. So now we've got a place, we threw that on my dev server, and now we've got a place where we can make tweaks to this data and then just regenerate it and copy it into the project anytime we need to make a change. We don't have to retype it all out or anything. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. And, I, and then I love FileMaker as middleware. Yeah, it's always a really good dev tool. We've talked about that many times. Um, the 
the part that is embarrassing that I'm going to talk about is <laughs> getting it working after that point of basically I wanted, we've got our two objects in the back end or in the uh, VUX store. So we've got our base list and our backend key list. And I wanted a way to, I guess the backend list holds the actual values that are generated by the diff. So if uh, the layouts have, you know, 13 modifications and two additions and two deletions, those numbers are stored in that backend record. And the C-sharp backend calls the incoming function. The incoming function calls into the store and sets those values when a comparison is run. But I needed to essentially make a getter in the store that would get data from the base list and then append on a, a couple of properties for those three values. And what I tried to do was make a getter that would essentially filter out the initial list and then map it to a new array of totally different object type and then just manually create the fields that I needed. And all of that was working, except it wouldn't work at all. <laughs> and that sounds like my experience. Yeah. I was doing everything right, except misunderstanding how key paths work in JavaScript. And essentially, some of our base items are grouping elements where they don't have a backend key. They just have a null value there. And I wasn't taking that into account when I was key pathing from one object to another and using the string of the backend key in the key path to access like the created count or the modification count. And instead of failing gracefully, it just failed completely, <laughs> which was frustrating. Like I was not getting any indication of what was the problem. It was just saying this property is, doesn't exist. And but it wasn't telling me the path. It wouldn't show me the path it was trying to traverse to get to that property. It was just saying, you know, created count does not exist, and then voiding the entire call. So, in one of the things I did to try to debug that was break that out of the getter. I still have a getter that does the filter to filter the list down to just the selected items, and then I made a computed property on the UI side, because I don't really need this in the store. This list is only living in one place. This um, derived list only lives in the sidebar. So I made some com computer properties there that get the, get the data from the store. And I started doing the logic in VF statements and V loops in the view template code. So I could kind of step through it and print out individual lines as HTML objects as I was printing it. And that ended up being beneficial because it helped me figure out that I was key pathing those invalid paths where you didn't have mm -hmm. a group. Um, so once I accounted for those, I was able to get it working. And in the process, I kind of rewrote the display for that to use we switched. We swapped from kind of the dynamically loading Bootstrap view table to the simple table, which is essentially manually coded tables where we have a lot more control over the styling of every individual row. So now that we've got a category list that has grouping in it, we need to say some of these rows 
need to be styled completely differently. Like they don't need any text in them, but they need a line and it needs to be this color and it needs to span all of the columns. And the next row needs a you know an icon and a label and the counts. Mm-hmm. And there may be some categories that maybe the, the traffic light counts don't make sense. So they need some variability. So as a result, we ended up in a really good place, but it was a really painful couple of hours to get there. But yeah, I know that was a lot, but that was exhausting. So I wanted to talk about my working environment, if you please. Sure. So uh, we've talked a little bit about some of the RSI issues I've had on this podcast before. And for better or worse, I've tried a different approach which is, this actually kind of goes back to a message thread we had a couple weeks ago when Apple released the newest iPad Pros, and I was kind of joking around that Apple finally released an iPad Pro that I don't want because I've impulsively bought the last three generations. And this was just kind of a spec bump release. And we were talking about their new fancy Magic Keyboard accessory that's got a trackpad built in and how... I think a lot of people really want that. I definitely don't want that. I don't want to touch a trackpad for a second more than I absolutely have to. The keyboard looks nice, but I wouldn't spend $350 on it. But I was thinking about, you know, how I really just, you know, Joe a couple of years ago wanted to move more and more of his work to working on an iPad as much as possible. And iOS still doesn't really make that possible for the work that I do. And I don't see that changing anytime soon, despite some small moves that Apple's making. But I was kind of lamenting, like, really, I just want a touchscreen Mac. Like, really, I just, I want to use the apps and workflows that I have now. I just don't want to use a mouse. I just want to be able to touch the screen when I need to move the pointer somewhere or select a window or something like that. And that stuck in my head for the last couple of weeks. And I thought, well, if I can't have a touchscreen Mac, maybe I can have the next best thing, which is a touchscreen Windows computer. Mm-hmm. It turns out there are lots of them, mm-hmm. lots and lots. So I spent a couple of weeks thinking about whether or not I should get one, you know, putting up with the drawbacks of Windows versus Mac OS, and decided to go ahead and pick one up, but on Joe's tab. So this was not a business purchase at this time. Um, this was out of my money, you know, after taxes, all of that stuff. So this is, you know, part of my tax refund for the year. And uh, it's a pretty fancy computer. It's a 15-inch laptop. It's called a an Asus ZenBook Pro Duo. And it's an obnoxiously weird laptop in that it has a 15.6-inch 4K display which is a really nice OLED display for the regular laptop screen. And then an entire second screen built into the base of the laptop where the keyboard would go. So in this design, the keyboard is pushed up to the front and the first half coming from the screen is a second screen. And it's the same width as the main screen. It's just half the height. So basically think of a you know, half of a 4K display. So it's a one and a half display computer. Okay, what's what's the name of this thing again? I got to pull it up on screen so I can look at it. 
It's the Asus ZenBook Pro Duo. And it's actually a pretty, it's, it's pretty neat. Um, I got one that's powerful enough to run any of the VR stuff out now if I need it to do that. But it's also light enough to be able to carry around. Like it's not like a huge tank of a laptop like my last one. That is weird. Mm-hmm. That is so weird. It's very weird, but really, really handy. So when I'm working on that, that bottom region, like say I'm working in FM comparison in Visual Studio Code, the code editor's up front, the terminal's in that bottom window. Or I'm in the FM comparison window and the main UI window's up front and the dev tools are in the bottom region. Oh my like, God. Yeah, it's really, really neat stuff. <laughs> Okay, just so you know, now I need a video. Sure. Just at, at some, it doesn't have to be long. I just want a short video of you using this thing because I'm fascinated. But it's unlike anything I've ever looked at for this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's really bizarre, and it, it also has a pen that came with it. I I don't use that a ton, but it's good for more precise things like. You know, if I need to, I can draw on it, but it can do other stuff. But the thing that I'm impressed with is how well Windows 10 adapts itself for touch. So when I'm using this thing, there is no pointer anywhere on the screen because I don't have a mouse hooked up to it. It does have a trackpad. And if I touch the trackpad and kind of wiggle my finger, the pointer will show up. But when I'm just using it as a touch screen, the pointer is just gone. And you're just using it as if it were a really big iPad. Um, and for the most part, with one glaring exception, almost everything I use works really well in this touch environment. And it, it allows me to keep my hands on the keyboard and use a full-size keyboard without having to push it to one side or the other to accommodate our mouse or a trackpad. And I don't do that weird reaching over the roller mouse thing I was doing. Like It, it gives me a much more ergonomic position to use a full-size keyboard. So I'm not typing on this laptop all day. Um, I have a laptop stand and then I have a, a full-size keyboard on the desk in front of it so that I'm looking kind of straight at the laptop screen and I can glance down and see the second screen and work with that. But it's not so high that I'm straining my arms to reach out and touch the screen. It's definitely a viable way to work. I'm not sure if I'm going to keep working this way indefinitely, but if Apple made a touchscreen Mac I would want it to work like this. And it kind of irritates me that they don't. So the first weekend I had this, I was thinking, you know, I'd just getting it set up and trying out different apps and stuff. And it occurred to me, what if I did get a touchscreen Mac? But it was this. So I decided to remotely connect to a <laughs> Mac in my office and try that out. And that works reasonably well. The, the difference is the touch input through the remote software basically treats it as clicks so that you see the, the mouse cursor in macOS just jumping around and following and then activating click for wherever you tapped. So it's not quite as smart as how Windows has already been kind of set up to account for touch as one of its inputs. But it is a viable way of working. I haven't got that working in a low latency way yet, 
um, but that's maybe something I can get working. But for the time being, I basically switched over all of my work to Windows, which is one of the motivating factors for pestering Dave about a Windows version. And uh, it's definitely weird. Like Windows has its drawbacks. I think a lot of my jobs working with text and the Mac OS keyboard shortcuts for just handling text just make more sense to me. But I'm kind of getting used to the Windows way of doing things. But the for the most part, everything is good. Like all the projects I'm doing right now are in in some kind of web technology, whether PHP or Vue or something else, even some WordPress projects. So none of those are really dependent on anything in the Mac OS tool chain. And if and when I go back to retrospective timelines, I can, you know, spend shorter periods of time using the Mac with a mouse or a trackpad to try to get that work done. Hopefully in the meantime, maybe they'll release a Mac touchscreen or there were rumors that the the iPad with the trackpad and the fancy keyboard, that people will have a theory that that is going to be the development environment for the ARM version of Mac OS, which I'd find hard to believe, but I guess we'll see. Um, okay. Yeah. So the one app that does not handle any of this very well is FileMaker. <laughs> and it's not it's not necessarily FileMaker's not handling touch very well. They're not handling high resolution displays. So a lot of the native Windows UI elements that they're using and let me clarify, this has no impact on FileMaker layouts. All the content of the layouts that I as a FileMaker developer make, all that works great. It's the toolbar, the inspector, the script editor, calculation editor, stuff like that, that some of these things have platform-specific UI elements, and they're not updated to the most recent APIs to account for scaling. So when you're working on Windows on a 4K screen, Windows has scaled the entire UI to still make things useful for me. So I'm not looking at super tiny little things, but there are... I, uh, see if I can find some screenshots. The, the inspector, most of the inspector in FileMaker works fine, except for the the four buttons at the top are about the size of a period in a very small font. Like you can't distinguish what they are. You can still tap on, tap on them, but you can't really tell what they are. And then the anchoring controls on that first tab are super tiny, and they're just this big open area with tiny little controls in them. So there's just a couple of places that FileMaker's like that. But yeah, Windows has some funky stuff related to high DPI displays. Yeah. Um, and it mostly requires opting in. Yeah. In a lot of cases, but you you really you have to write your app to support high DPI displays. It's not just automatically handled for you at the operating system level and you don't have to do anything to support it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and a couple of years ago when I was trying first getting into VR and using a Windows machine then, almost every app looked awful. Mm -hmm. But it's gotten to the point where everything that I'm using now looks pretty good except for FileMaker, having a couple of these weird edge cases. And I'm guessing with something like FileMaker being in 
kind of continuous iterative development for such a long period of time, they're probably using several different UI approaches for that stuff. So yeah, it's. It, I'm sure there's a list that somebody just keeps adding to, and they eventually knock them out. Because it's not as bad as it was a couple of years ago. It was FileMaker was almost completely unusable when I tried it on a 4K display a couple of years ago. But it's just little weird places now. So yeah, uh, I guess I'm a Windows user for the time being. <laughs> I don't know that I've ever met somebody who transitions between predominantly Mac to predominantly Windows to back as regularly as you do. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's yeah. just, I don't, it is outside my realm of experience. Yeah. I mean, I, most of my computing life is on the Windows side, so it's not hard for me to kind of fall back into how everything works. It's, uh, there are things on Mac OS that I end up missing, but there are, I'm a faster developer on Windows, at least in FileMaker. Even despite all the weird issues with the touchscreen and the high DPI stuff, I just, I'm way faster at navigating FileMaker because there's, there's just subtle differences for how type ahead works on Windows versus Mac, Mac OS. And just about anything that can present a list of text in Windows can be traversed with type ahead just by typing a couple of characters. And that doesn't always work the same way in Mac OS. So things like opening uh, go to layout, I can just start typing the first couple of characters of the layout and populate that in a way that it doesn't work in Mac OS the same way. Um, but yeah, like the, when I first switched to Mac OS in 2014 to start doing FileMaker Developer, I felt like I was wearing mittens for a couple of weeks. I was just like really, really clumsy. And I eventually got used to things. And most of the code that I've written, because I really started learning how to write code after that point, so most of the PHP and Swift and C Sharp, most of that was written on Mac OS. And I'm really used to Mac OS's keyboard and text manipulation stuff, like how to select lines, how to move the cursor, you know, to the beginning of the line, in the line, beginning of a word, select words, stuff like that. All of that is different on Windows. Most of it's still there, it's just different. And I'm kind of figuring that out as I go. And it's it's relatively straightforward because I'm working in Visual Studio Code for everything. And it's got pretty good documentation and it's customizable if I need to be able to change stuff around. But yeah. I was definitely having some problems as I was flipping back and forth between Visual Studio and Visual Studio Code for Mac versus Visual Studio and Visual Studio Code for Windows. Mm -hmm. Losing track of which operating system I was in. Yeah. Because it... Visual Studio Code is pretty much the same on both. Visual Studio is substantively different between the two, but when I'm looking Very at different. the code, I'm not looking at the UI Chrome around it. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of it looks and feels the same, and I just lose track of where I am, which causes some interesting problems. Yeah. Visual Studio on Windows has one of my favorite features I've ever seen, and I've never seen anybody else implement this. So you've got, you can have tabs open, so multiple editors with tabs open for each document. And you can right click and pin a tab, and there's a setting buried somewhere that your pinned tabs become a separate tab row above the other tabs. So you can essentially have two tab rows 
And that is just a really clever way of working. So you're, I haven't figured out a way to get this working in VS Code yet, but maybe I'll see if I can make an extension. Because it would be nice to have a tab row that is just you know, the Vuex modules that I'm working with, and then below that are the actual components I'm working on. Mm. Okay. That would be really cool. Yeah. I, if you're thinking about a VS Code extension, my first stop would be the VS Code extension store, because mm -hmm. somebody's probably written it. There's thousands yeah. of those things. Yeah, I've found a couple handy things already. So I started playing around with WebVR a little bit. I mentioned that a couple weeks ago. I was going to start prototyping some stuff with WebVR. Mm -hmm. And I haven't made a ton of progress other than just working through some tutorials and kind of reading about how it works and made a little sandbox testing environment to play with. And I was just kind of messing around with a couple of things yesterday afternoon and I had set up a view app and I was, I was on the Windows machine, so I made a new view app to just load basically like a single page application that can have a bunch of links that each of those links goes to a web VR place. And then I can use the live preview features with that. So I set up the new view project and tried to import A-Frame and I'm getting all kinds of weird errors from A-Frame about the node version being too advanced and I have no idea how to fix this so I'm you know just trying to figure out how do I get this module working with my view project you can just add a script tag to an HTML file but I'm in the view project there is no index.html file except there is it's just in a folder that I've never opened before. <laughs> <laughs> it's just sitting right there at the top of the folder directory. Uh -huh. And there's a, there's actually a, an index.html with some boilerplate code and then kind of a token that gets replaced with the view app at runtime. I just had never <laughs> poked my head in there before. So I decided the script tag and finally got it working. Yeah, if you hadn't rebuilt the view app for FM comparison when you started working on it, you would have eventually bumped into that mm. because I had already done some small tweaks there. Probably mm, okay. not good ones because apparently you didn't need to do those, but yeah, I did where I was. Yeah, I don't know. So one of the things I was, you know, as I'm making the view app and playing with A-frame stuff, really all it was was like, I set up routers so I can make some views and each of those views just has a template that then goes into A-frame code from there. So it just loads a full screen scene that you can then activate in AR or VR mode from there. And just trying out different objects in A-frame. I've got a whole bunch of primitives and figuring out how positioning and rotation works and stuff like that. And it occurs to me, like, can I just make a view component that is an A-frame object? A-frame entity. So I tried it, and yes, yes, I can. <laughs> and I don't know if that's a good idea, but I'm totally going to do that because it, it opens up a ton of possibilities. So A-frame is basically, A-frame is to 3D what Bootstrap is to dashboards and admin tools. Like okay. it's, it's, a, it's a HTML and CSS thing 
but there's no logic there. You don't you don't write scripts in A-Frame. You define elements and put them together. So all of the the logic would still have to happen in code. And in this case, I could do that in view and particularly using things like the Vuex store as kind of like a super singleton to manage application state. So like in Unity, we would make a game manager that would handle all kinds of stuff. I could throw all that in the store in Vuex and have my components reference that as needed. And all of a sudden I have like a single control point without having to deal with any object-oriented stuff. And it sounds like a pretty powerful combination. Yeah, yeah. unfortunately I'm not competent enough in A-frame or view to speak intelligently as to whether that's a good idea or a bad idea. It sounds powerful. Yeah. But like any of the A-frame objects, they just each have HTML attributes that you basically most of them just pass in as string or numbers. But I could make all of them bindable as part of the view components so they could have properties on the components and then they're, the template code is bound to those properties. So all of a sudden I've got kind of like in Unity where you can write a, a component and give it some public properties that are viewable in the inspector. I've got essentially the view and A-frame version of that now where I can expose properties and like, you know, assemble all of the the models and the animations and the textures and behaviors for an entity all squirreled away in a component file somewhere and just surface a couple of public properties of how I control that and then maybe call those properties from some state manager. It's pretty cool stuff. Like I'm gonna lose a couple of weeks of my life to this idea. <laughs> Well, good. Then maybe I can get some work done on the back end while you're doing that. <laughs> while I'm distracted. <laughs> <laughs> Strike while the iron is hot. <laughs>